as we turn together to the book of Acts. Of course, Acts is short for the Acts of the Apostles. It has often been said, though, that this book could better be named the Acts of the Holy Spirit or the Acts of the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus Christ through His Apostles. As we see the work of the early church, our text this morning will be Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's Word. It is inerrant. It is sufficient. It is authoritative. Acts chapter 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit for many days, not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would open up your word to us. We ask, O Lord, that you would remind us that you are alive, that you are involved in our lives, and that you have worked the finished work of the gospel in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Acts is an interesting and a special book. It is the only historical book, really, of the church. It is a book of history. It is not merely a book of teaching. It is not a book of sayings. It is a book that shows the work of the church from the time that the Lord Jesus Christ ascended until the Apostle Paul went to Rome. It is history. It was written by a man by the name of Luke. Some of you may know him as Dr. Luke, because we hear of him as being the beloved physician. It may be that that is why we, are, we find doctors more appealing than lawyers, because there's not a lawyer who has written 
a book of the scripture. But Luke was more than just a medical doctor. Luke was a careful, precise historian. You see, in Luke's day, you couldn't just Google Jesus or Caesarea Philippi. You couldn't even go into a library and pull books off shelves. No man came to your door selling Encyclopedia Britannica. If you were going to write a history, you had to do hard work. You had to interview dozens of people. You had to interview eyewitnesses and interview people whom the eyewitnesses spoke to. It was a difficult and careful task. And that is what Luke did. And it shouldn't surprise us that that's what Acts looks like because that's what Luke did in his gospel. We could almost also call Acts Luke part two. You see, in ancient days, you wrote books on a scroll and you rolled it up and you carried it around with you. And you could only get about so much scroll before it was too big to carry. About 35 feet. And it's said that both Luke and Acts are just about that length. So this is the second of two scrolls. And so what I would like us to see this morning from this first chapter of Acts, this first section, is the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a doctrine that doesn't often get preached on, especially at Easter. But it is a doctrine that is intricately related to the resurrection. And it is intricately related to our work as the church of Jesus Christ. And so what I would like us to see are five things. First, I would like us to see the proof of the gospel. The proof of the gospel in this chapter. And then secondly, we will look at the presence of Christ as Jesus was among his disciples. Third, we will see the problem of the disciples. They have a difficulty that we must see and avoid. And fourthly, we will see the power of the gospel And then finally, the promise of the gospel. All peace make it easier a bit for us to remember. Let's look first then at the proof of the gospel. We said that Luke was a historian, that he wrote this book, interviewed folks, and was careful about how he did it. This is very important for you. You see, because Christianity is a religion of history. Christianity depends upon facts. It is not a religion, it is not a faith based primarily on an idea. It's not like other religions or philosophies that can exist apart from their founders, the ones who came up with the ideas. You can be a Buddhist, for example, and not have any idea who Buddha is. You can understand and follow the philosophy of Plato or Aristotle or Ayn Rand and not even know that you're following their philosophy. Not so Christianity. You cannot separate the Christian faith from Jesus Christ. Christianity is a religion based on proven facts. It is a religion based upon the life, death, and resurrection of a historical person, the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. If you take away the facts of Christianity, you are left with an empty shell. Maybe some of you did this experiment for school or just for fun when you were younger, where you take an egg 
and you put a very small hole in it and you find a way to suck out all of the inside of the egg. And all you are left with is the shell. It's very light, right? It's very fragile. You put it down too hard, it cracks, and then goes into dust or nothing. That is what Christianity is like when we abandon the historical fact that Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary, lived a perfect life for 33 years, and died upon a Roman cross at Calvary. You cannot move away from the facts of Christianity. And that's what Luke is going to be giving us over and over again as we go through the Acts. You see, the disciples were not a people who were about to fabricate these sorts of things. When Jesus Christ died, they were literally falling apart. As a group, they couldn't stay together. And one of them, Thomas, was so skeptical that he said, yeah, you tell me Jesus is risen. Unless I see the marks in his hands and the marks in his feet, I won't believe. This was who the disciples were. And so Luke tells us that Jesus Christ, for 40 days after his resurrection, appeared at various times to the disciples and by many proofs, decisive proofs. This is not circumstantial evidence. This is the glove doesn't fit evidence. This is the kind of evidence that in a courtroom you go, and it proves the case. That's what Luke means when he says decisive proofs, proofs of Jesus Christ risen from the dead. And so the resurrection then is central to all that we believe. It is a fact to be relied upon, not just wished upon. And because it is a fact, we know that Jesus Christ is God. And because we know that Jesus Christ is God, we know that he speaks the truth. And because he speaks the truth, we know we can trust everything that he teaches This is what we mean when we talk about the proof of the gospel found in Jesus Christ being raised from the dead and physically visiting the disciples. But he didn't just visit them for proof. This was not just some Perry Mason caper. No, Jesus Christ visited his disciples to give his presence to them. The presence of Jesus Christ in the beginning of chapter of Acts. It said that Jesus Christ began to do and to teach in the previous book. And then for 40 days, he was with the disciples intermittently. Luke is finishing up the second part of his work. And he describes the first part of his work as describing all that Jesus began to do and teach. We know that as the Gospel of Luke. And we see Jesus all over its pages. But do you wonder why Luke said that book is about what Jesus began to teach? Not what he taught, but about what he began to teach. You see, because what Luke is saying is, what Jesus taught and did is also in Acts. You shake your head and you say, wait a minute. Verse 11, he's gone. Well, he shows up a little bit in chapter 9, but Jesus isn't exactly in Acts. The work of the Lord Jesus Christ goes on. It continues in Acts. It continues even today by His Spirit through His church. All that Jesus began to do and to teach is not finished. It is carried on today in this church by the ministry of the Holy Spirit as we teach the Word of God, 
as we do the works of love and mercy that Jesus did. Jesus' work continues. He is present not only with the disciples, but with us here. For the disciples, he also appeared to them for 40 days. He appeared to them speaking about the kingdom of God. He presented himself alive to them. And he convinced even those who had no contemplation, no expectation of a resurrection. And this was a real presence. Those of you that are more familiar with Reformed theology know we speak of the real presence in the Lord's Supper. Well, this was sort of a real, real presence. Where the text says that he was with them, spent time with them, appearing with them. Look at verse 4. While staying with them. That word, while staying, can also be translated ate. Had table fellowship. It's actually a very odd word. It means ate salt with them. It means that they sat around the table. So Jesus didn't just pop in and out. We get some of that from the Gospel of John. You must picture Jesus communing with his disciples, encouraging them, eating with them, answering their questions, being there for them. It's one of the reasons why community is so important to the church. Because Jesus is all about community. He began his work. He had table fellowship with his people, but he also led his church. Notice that what he did during these days was he spoke with them about the kingdom of God. Explaining to them what was happening. This is sort of the extended version of the Road to Emmaus sermon or lecture series. He was with his disciples explaining to them that the kingdom of God was present. That the kingdom of God had come and that it had come with power. But he didn't leave them to their own devices. Do you notice that when he tells them this, he tells them that they must not depart from Jerusalem. They must wait for the promise of the Father. God will initiate this mission of the church, not the church. You see, oftentimes, isn't that the case with us? We get an idea, and the first thing we want to do is to rush and to run and to do. We don't stop and pray. We don't seek godly counsel. We don't look at the Word of God. We're so eager in our zeal to act for the Lord that we don't think to ask where the Lord would have us to go. But you see, Jesus tells the disciples, what you must do here is you must stay in Jerusalem. And again, the word here has an interesting connotation. It means don't depart, don't leave, but it also means stay together. He's not just saying stay there and don't move like we often do to our younger children. He's saying you must stay together. Do not lose heart. You must wait and you must wait together and encourage one another. Stay here in Jerusalem. Do not get ahead of yourself. And then he says, I will give you my presence by my spirit. He says, you will have to wait for the promise of the father of which he said, and you heard from me. And we ask ourselves, where did we hear from Jesus about this promise of the Father? John 14? 
John 15. John 16. It's the promise of the Holy Spirit that Jesus not only would send his spirit, that not only would his spirit quicken them, that not only would his spirit equip them, but his spirit would be the means by which Jesus would be with them. And we hear that wonderful, mysterious scripture in which Jesus says, it is to your advantage that I leave. Because if I don't leave, you won't have the spirit. You won't have this gift of the Father. And... Luke is interesting because Luke is the only author in the New Testament that links this gift of the Spirit with the answer to the question, who is the Messiah? In chapter 3, people come up to him and they say, well, who is the Messiah? Are you the Messiah? And he says, you will know by the gift of the Spirit. He links those two concepts together. That's a great comfort to us, isn't it? You see, at those dark points of your soul, those quiet evenings when you're afraid, when you think maybe God has abandoned you, when you think you haven't done enough for him, when you're not sure if Jesus is real, you can think about the work of the Holy Spirit in your life and know that Jesus is your Messiah. Because he has sent his Spirit. He is with you. His presence It's with you. And this is, of course, a fulfillment of an age-old promise that we find in Joel chapter 2. This is the fulfillment of the presence of God with his people. But you see, the disciples, they still have a problem. I often find it very curious to read the Gospels and read Acts, especially the beginning of Acts, and, and you look at the disciples and you just want to shake your head. It's, it's like watching a movie with someone in the theater who yells out, No, don't go into that room! You know he's there! Oh, why don't you think for a minute? And we sit and we say to ourselves, Why don't these disciples get this? They've been with Jesus for three years. He's taught them all kinds of things. And they still don't seem to get it. And that's what happens here in verse 6. They begin asking the wrong questions. Jesus gives them this great promise that the gift of the Spirit will be theirs. He's given them proofs of his resurrected body. And they look at him and they say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, you have to get the picture here. They are incredibly eager. The Greek here actually says, they asked and said. They're almost fumbling over each other to find out, well, is now the time? We've been waiting. You know, it's been three years, and we thought it was all over at the cross. But now, now surely you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel. Right, Lord? And it shows that they're wrong on so many levels. The first thing they say is, will you? And they have a wrong idea as to the kind of victory that Jesus achieved. You see, it's as if to them, Easter meant a new constitution for the United States that was better. It's as if to them, Easter meant a new Congress would be elected and taxes would go down. Now, we sit and we think about this and we think of the foolishness of that. The eternal life found in the resurrection as opposed to lower taxes? 
But you see, that's where their focus is. And their focus is on the restoration of what was, not on what is to come. That's why they say, would you please restore the kingdom to Israel? The word restore there is the same word that is used when a man has his eyesight given back to him. Or when the man with the withered hand has his hand restored to him. It's the same old hand. It's just as big as it was. If he was clumsy with it, he's still clumsy. If he couldn't see it long distances with his eyes, he still can't see it long distances. See, they want the restoration of Israel. And if all we have to do is look at the Old Testament and see that that is not our eternal end. They want restored what went wrong. Their focus is backward, not forward. Have you ever been around someone that walked backwards? I had this, just happened to me this past week. One of my kids was showing me how far they could walk backwards. And my immediate reaction was, please stop, you're going to fall. You're not meant to walk backwards. You're meant to walk forwards where your eyes are. And you see, that's what Jesus has to tell the disciples. Don't walk backwards. Go forward. That's what I died for. Not to rebuild some little better version of what was, but to bring you something that you have no idea how grand and great and eternal it is. And you see, as always, their focus is on the time. Well, you know, at this time, are you going to do it? And Jesus doesn't give them a strong no, but he does give them a no. He says, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. And of course, finally, the last question they ask is, would you please restore the kingdom to Israel? You see, they have in mind this tiny geographic region. They have in mind this tiny kingdom bounded by ethnicity. Jesus has in mind a kingdom that is universal in the very real sense of the word. By the resurrection, Jesus redeemed all of creation. And they want this little tiny patch of land with a few people. And do you see how they're not thinking how Jesus is thinking? He just spent 40 days teaching them about what? The kingdom of God. And they want to be concerned about the kingdom of Israel. And Jesus says to them, you know what? It's none of your business. Your job is to be my witnesses. And that's, I think, what Jesus says to you today. It's not your job to worry about whether we are a Christian nation. It's your job to be Jesus' witnesses. It's not your job to worry about what news story on Easter Time magazine runs. It's your job to be the witness of the risen, resurrected Christ. And that's oh so much easier. It's oh so much more fulfilling to be a witness to what Jesus Christ has done. We also see the power in the gospel. A power that can overcome this kind of problem. The temptation that we are faced as a church, a temptation to either be idle or to seek our own self-importance. You see, Jesus says here in verse 7, It's not for you to know the times or the season that the Father has fixed by His own authority. And this authority is God's power. That's the word for authority. You have authority in the ancient world because you have power. And that's what Jesus says. 
It is God who has the power. And this power will come to you. In verse 8, you will receive power from the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you may have heard a bad Greek lesson. You've heard someone describe this power as dynamite. Because that's what it means. No, but close. You see, we don't get this word power from dynamite. What happened was, Alfred Nobel, who was one of the inventors of dynamite, put it together and it exploded with such violent force. He looked to his friend and he said, what is the Greek word for this kind of explosive force? And he said, it's dunamis. And he said, we'll call it dynamite. And you see, dynamite is a small shadow of the power that the Holy Spirit has. It's the power that turned the world upside down, that made barbarian nations seekers after the true and living God, that has brought health and literacy to the globe. This is the kind of power that will eventually undermine the imprisonment of a billion people in China as the church grows and professes the resurrected Christ. This kind of power comes not simply to be watched or looked at. It comes with a mission. You see, Jesus says you will receive this power, and as soon as you receive this power, you will then go out. You know I told you to stay? Then you will go. And you will go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see, the power of the gospel is also in its mission. And this mission will take the disciples out of their comfort zone. They have to go out into Judea. They have to go see these miserable Samaritans that they don't like. And then they have to go out to the ends of the earth to speak to people who know languages that are odd, with odd sounds that they don't know. This is the mission of the kingdom of God. And as a matter of fact, that one verse could be the table of contents for Acts. Because we will see them in Jerusalem in chapters 1 through 7. And in Judea and Samaria in chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11. And then we will see the Apostle Paul and others go out to the ends of the earth. This is the power of the gospel. And this power has not changed in 2,000 years. Christian, do you seek to take the gospel of the resurrected Jesus Christ to Katy, to Houston, to the ends of the earth? Because that is your mission. Don't worry about lower taxes. Your mission is the ends of the earth, for the ends of the earth are Jesus Christ's. That's what Psalm 2 is all about. And that's why over and over again, the Christian mission after the resurrection is go. You know, on Easter, we read the sections from the Gospels on how the the stone is rolled away from the tomb and how the ladies see the Lord Jesus Christ. But shortly after that, in every single Gospel, the command comes out, go. We know the Great Commission in Matthew 28, but it's also in Mark 16. It's also in John chapter 20. And it's in Luke chapter 24. And then... In Acts chapter 10, Peter summarizes all of this again, saying, we must go. This is so important that it is the last recorded words of Jesus Christ before he is ascended. Do you think that's a priority for the church? 
What better day to think about that priority for the church than on Resurrection Sunday? Celebrate Easter this year, this week, not by eating another puffy yellow chicken. Celebrate it by speaking to a neighbor, a co-worker, a friend, about the peace and life that is found in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have power from on high. Jesus is ascended. You have the power of the Holy Spirit. You have the mission of the kingdom of God. Finally, and briefly, it's not just the power of the gospel that we rely on. We also have the great promise of the gospel. You see, sometimes we need to be prompted. And after Jesus ascends, you can almost imagine the picture. There's probably 50 or 100 people And they're looking up into the sky, probably with their mouths half open. What did we just see? Do you think he's going to come back? Well, you know, at the transfiguration, the cloud cleared and he was there. No, don't see him. Maybe later. And then someone says, hey, there's two gentlemen over here. And they say, men of Galilee, why are you staring up into the sky? This same Jesus will return, but not now. So you know what? Go, get to work. Sometimes I think Jesus needs to tell us that. As we read God's word, as we gaze upon the truth of the doctrines in the scriptures, and we bask in them, almost like a warm bath, you know, that you don't want to get out of. We need someone to come alongside us and say, get up, there's work to do. There's people to tell the gospel story. There's people to teach. There's growth to be had in Jesus Christ. We must get up and go. Because you see, the promise for us is the ends of the earth. And the ascension is a surety of that next promise. You see, the ascension explains why Jesus is absent. He is interceding for his people at the throne of God. The ascension shows what we can expect Jesus to come down. The text is very emphatic. Likewise, in the same manner. It won't be a secret coming. Everyone will know we will see it. The ascension also reminds us that this is not the end. You see, Jesus goes from glory to glory, the glory of the transfiguration, to the glory of the ascension, to the glory of his second coming, which reminds his people that he's coming back. But it also is a reminder to every man, woman, and child who has not professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who thinks they can put off Jesus till a later time, that Jesus is coming for a greater glory. Because throughout Acts, we will see The apostles preach about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, but they always preach a judgment to come. Jesus Christ is coming back to gather his own. If you have not put your faith and trust in Jesus, what better day to do so than today? Not because it's Easter, but because it's today. There's not a day to waste. There's work to be done. 
There's power to be had. There's a Jesus to be glorified. Christian, this is the glory of the ascension of Jesus Christ. 